everyone. Welcome back to the Judson Podcast. I'm Jenny. Our question of the week that we are asking ourselves is a classic. If you were to get a tattoo, what would it be and why? Or a piercing. Or a piercing. What would it be and, and how would that piercing be meaningful to you? Um, if I were to get a tattoo, which I know I wouldn't because this is a, a very painful type of tattoo to get. Um, <laughs> but what I think would be really cool is the lamp post from the book Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis because the lamp post is sort of a signal that you're crossing over from Earth, from the real world, into the fantasy world. This lamp post is magical, so it burns eternally with an internal light, and I think that's really beautiful. But where I would get it is up and down my spine. So that's how I know I will never get this tattoo. Because <laughs> getting a tattoo on your spine is rather painful. Mm. How about you guys? Hey guys, this is Scott. Let's see. Uh, we talked about whether these are regular tattoos or Christian tattoos, so I have an answer for each. If I was to get like a regular tattoo, I think I would have to go all out, right? Like there's people who get like a few tattoos kind of haphazardly around their body and it just doesn't look that cool. I think you need to go all out and my tattoo... No, don't your face? No, no, no. My, two, my <laughs> tattoo aspiration would be J.R. Smith. Okay. So if you guys don't know, J.R. Smith, this very outgoing NBA basketball player who uh, is known for being covered with tattoos. So I wouldn't do my entire upper body, but at least one of my arms, like the, the entire arm from like wrist to shoulder would have to be covered in tattoos. Would you have to bulk up that arm first or? I don't know if it's possible to bulk up my wrist. I have small Asian wrists. <laughs> <laughs> now, for my second answer, if I was to get a Christian tattoo, I would try to fit as much of the gospels in writing <laughs> on my back as possible. Thinking that one day, maybe like in the post-apocalypse, like um, after all the books have been burned, someone will find my body and they'll rediscover the gospels on my back. So like in eight-point font, do a couple chapters from John, something like that. If maybe. your body doesn't decompose. And <laughs> Scott, I think you've one up to me for painful. That would yeah. be the more painful and time-consuming. <laughs> Scott, I think you won. But if you suffer with him, you're definitely resurrected. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Righteous suffering. <laughs> Hi, this is David. I am researching the least painful areas to get a tattoo. It's saying the uh, fingernails, which I didn't think about, but I won't do. <laughs> Shoulders, calves, ear cartilage. Anyway, huh. I'm going to try. <laughs> Scott took my idea. Well, that was not my idea, but that would be the best idea. Um, I would probably get something that wouldn't change as I got older, wouldn't change shape. I'll change shape as you get older. Maybe I should just get a straight lines and then so I can, <laughs> so I can um, judge how my body is changing by how much the lines get curved. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Jenny's laughing on that one. It's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, David, I think you've literally come up with the idea for the worst tattoo ever. <laughs> I'll get like five straight lines and then we'll just take, we'll see what happens as time goes on. I mean, that's kind of like minimalist, modern, you know, setting. Yeah. You could say, what is it? Oh, it's a sheet of music. Oh, it's this, it's that. But all the while, it's just measure of how much I'm aging. 
Well, on that note, uh, my name is Jeremy. I'm the guest here on the show today. Welcome, and Jeremy. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Tattoo. So I already have some tattoos. Um, so I would keep the one that I have, which pretty much is a cross, kind of laying down on its side, though, and mountains and valleys coming up out of it. And underneath it, there's a G for God. There's a greater sign. And then there's an arrow pointing up and an arrow pointing down. And the message pretty much is God is greater than the ups and the downs. Or God is greater than the hills and the valleys. I like it because it does change with time. And so no matter what season I'm going through, um, to look at it, to glance at it, and to see the message that God is greater than whatever I'm going through has been so meaningful for me in many different seasons of life so far um, since I've gotten it. So, um, Awesome. In the beginning... When I mentioned that it could be a tattoo or a piercing, it's because Jenny mentioned that she was really close to getting a, a piercing in a very surprising area. Who <laughs> 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 Is that like the final edit, Scott? Uh, I was thinking of getting a navel piercing. I think they're really pretty, but... Oh, that's not... I would be so afraid of it tearing out, and I feel like that would just be the worst thing, so... <laughs> I think out of solidarity, all the hosts of the Justin podcast should get navel piercings. Yes. <laughs> no. I'm, I'm just a guest, by the way. <laughs> all right. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Justin podcast. We are a diverse group of friends who get together to talk about faith, culture, and all the things that interest us. If you've been tuning in for the last few weeks, you know that we've been kind of doing a series exploring white Christianity and non-white Christianity and the interesting ways where they intersect and all the meaningful things that non-white Christianity has to offer the rest of the American church. So in one of our most recent episodes, we talked with um, David's friend Jeff, you know, talked about what it's like to be a black Christian growing up in the black church, just the uniqueness of that cultural background. And so we thought a, a great way to continue this conversation is, you know, what is it like to be a black Christian navigating non-black Christian spaces? Where do the tensions lie? Where do the benefits lie? And what kind of wisdom can we pass on to you know, other young Christians who are going through the same types of journeys? And so that's why we have our guest Jeremy with us today, Jeremy Ogunba. I know Jeremy through our house church that we're trying to build together. Jeremy is a native Rhode Islander, has a rich ministry background that I think will be really fruitful for our conversation. Um, so yeah, Jeremy, I'll hand it off to you to talk about your story. Yeah, um, so I grew up in Providence, and I grew up not going to church that often, maybe once a year, and that was probably Easter. I wouldn't consider myself a Christian um, at that time, and growing up in Providence, going through the public school system, um, but I came to faith in college. And crazy, I don't want to take too much time, but I came to faith in a small Nigerian Pentecostal church. Um, I read a book that opened up my eyes to the spiritual realm, and a friend invited me to church. And Wait, what book? Uh, the book was called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And so I was telling my coworker at work, and she looked at me and was like, hey, you should come to my church. And so I went, and I really liked it. It was, it was good, good vibes, good message. I joined the choir because they, they begged me to. They didn't know I, could, I can't sing too well. But long story short, I showed up at choir practice and experienced God in a way that I haven't before. Um, I was on my knees crying, and I knew that I had a crazy experience with God and that it was real. 
Um, before that, I was asking myself questions about the existence of God. And at that point, um, that question was answered. And so I came to faith in that small church. And, you know, that was in July of 2009. Yeah, it was a lot that summer. But I went back to school in the fall, joined InterVarsity. Um, next thing you know, um, I'm part of InterVarsity ministry on campus and part of the small Nigerian Pentecostal church. And I kind of had my foot in those two spaces for the first couple of years of my faith. And um, it was a great, a great upbringing um, into the faith with two really different experiences. Um, and then after that, I became a youth pastor, came on staff at InterVarsity, been on staff at InterVarsity for the past eight years. Um, I've been at schools um, like UMass Dartmouth, Rhode Island College, and Brown University. And uh, and now um, I'm working for InterVarsity as a justice program director, um, creating exp- experiences for students to live in the city, to collab with other nonprofits and organizations that are doing good work in the city, and to go through a curriculum of um, God's heart for justice and the poor and the marginalized. And so I was creating that experience until COVID hit. And so we kind of had to skip that this year, but we'll be back at it again next year. Justice time. program director, you said? Yeah. Wow. Sorry. Right. No, Intercity <laughs> had that. <laughs> yeah, they, they used to call them urban program directors. And then they got away from the word urban because there's a lot of connotations between urban really meant like black or people black. of color. <laughs> <laughs> and so they're like, maybe we shouldn't call it urban because some of their justice programs weren't in urban cities. They were in other places and suburbs and non-urban areas and so they figured they'd change it through your various ministry experiences uh, you've had the chance to be you know mentored maybe even discipled by various white christian leaders mm-hmm. um, like in one of your church experiences um even now with this house church we're building the person consulting you was kind of like a white mentor to you mm-hmm. right yeah yeah what have been the pros and cons of having white males as your spiritual mentors mm. Yeah, it's been it's been interesting because I've had both white males and black males and African males as mentors. I think it's been it's been hard navigating some of those spaces and conversations, um, especially with white males, because you don't know necessarily what value they have placed on you. Are you the token person that they want to put up front to attract people? Do they really believe in your gifts? Are they really just trying to make me more like them? Um, are my gifts valued and wanted just as they are? Am I too black for this space? So all of these questions are questions that I have to filter through when navigating those kinds of spaces, which, you know, from the beginning make it a unpleasant situation many times. Mm, yeah. I think for, for me, part of that difficulty lies in the fact that, you know, a lot of these white leaders, they want to be genuine. They want to have genuine relationships with minorities and people of color, but they don't have the tools or the experience to really be the type of mentor figures I think we need. Uh, like, for instance, I've never had a white mentor figure who was interested in my cultural background, mm-hmm. right? And me as a really? Korean, as a Korean man. Like, they, like, I've had zero questions about Korean culture and how it influenced me growing up. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Wow. Like to me, that's basic, but yeah. it just it just goes to show how little cultural intelligence there is, like among white Christian leadership. Yeah, that's kind of ironic because my next question was going to be because <laughs> you said you went to Nigerian Pentecostal church. How was that? My experience in the Nigerian Pentecostal church helped me see that there's different types of Christianity. Mm-hmm. I was simultaneously a part of this small Nigerian Pentecostal church and a part of this like huge evangelical campus ministry. And so 
I'll go to the small Nigerian Pentecostal church and we're having prayer from 11 o'clock at night to one o'clock in the morning, casting out devils and demons and speaking in tongues. <laughs> and and then I would go to InterVarsity and do manuscript study and, and sing songs on the guitar. <laughs> and so the, the experiences were so vastly different. And so I would be able to bring a lot of what I was learning in InterVarsity to my Nigerian Pentecostal church of like inductive Bible study and how do we look at scripture and those kinds of things. But I was also able to, to bring like warfare prayer and like spiritual authority to InterVarsity spaces that many times was lacking because of my experiences in the Nigerian Pentecostal church. And so a flaw that I've learned over time, which I didn't pick up right away, was that when I was at InterVarsity, there were things that were cultural, that were white, American, but it was communicated as if it was just a norm. That's just how it is, or that's just the right way or the right interpretation. And so what mm -hmm. it did was it made every other interpretation off somehow. But it would have been nice to say, hey, this is a, an, a white American interpretation of this passage, or this is a white American spiritual practice. Um, but instead, it was like, this is what discipleship looks like. This is what evangelism looks like. And so only through experience that I learned that, oh, um, maybe that's not the norm. Maybe that's just one expression. And then I had to open my eyes up to a whole wider variety of Christianity, which I'm still trying to do. Especially if your mentor is teaching you that, like someone who's in authority, I feel yeah. like that can be very dangerous because they're the authority figures, so they're supposed to know, quote, more about Christianity, but they might just be bringing their own cultural background and yeah. laying it down as law. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like there is any home base, I guess, for church? Like for me, I've I did get a lot from the black church I went to growing up. And while I do believe in doing stuff outside of it with Christians, even though the whole church I feel like is a home base, that's more of like a home base within. Do you feel like there is a one of the, among your initial church experiences or later ones is sort of like a template or a home base or default for you? Or do you not really feel like that? Yeah. The closest thing to that, I would say, is within InterVarsity, there's ethnic-specific ministry. And so they they have a, a ministry called Black Campus Ministries mm -hmm. that specifically and intentionally reaches Black college students. I was in that as a student, and then I became um, the director of that for four years. And so in that space with other Black staff, um, I think we found a space that we would consider a home base, at least within InterVarsity, especially if they didn't have a church experience that was a home base. And it was just a space where you, you felt seen a space where you felt heard, a space where you didn't have to convince anybody of anything. Mm -hmm. There was a shared knowing of experiences, and it was a place to to heal, to to laugh, to joke. It was a space outside of the white gaze, um, in a way. Mm -hmm. And that was a haven for many seasons and many times. And whenever we could gather, it was definitely a special, a special place. But now that I'm no longer heavily within InterVarsity, we're trying to create that that space within our within our house church and trying to envision what that could look like. I was gonna say that's like a really great question, David, because what one thing that a lot of people from a background of privilege don't realize is that a lot of us, you know, we kind of have to create our own spiritual spaces. Like if you're a white Christian, you can get 100% of your um, spiritual nourishing like from your congregation, from your small group, from your pastor. And everything is kind of prepackaged like conveniently 
for your consumption. But us uh, as people of color Christians, I mean, we know that there's not really one kind of one size fits all space for us. And so we kind of have to do a lot more, have a lot more initiative, have a lot more seeking to kind of create that space like you had, Jeremy, where you can find like-minded believers and kind of have that spiritual home base that you can fall back on to whatever struggles you're going through. So you would say that sometimes often a predominantly white space generates discomfort. Would you say also that sometimes a space of people with predominantly your own cultural background can also generate discomfort? Yeah, I think I think it's possible um, for sure. But for me specifically, I don't want to speak for everybody, but you know, Go ahead, there's, you a, there's something that happens when you... <laughs> There's something that happens when you're in a group of white folks and you're a black person and you see another black person. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like this, like, oh, there's another one. I see you, like, fist bump. Like, don't show everybody, but like, fist bump, like, <laughs> kind of thing. And there is an, an, an inherent comfort in being around folks that are like you. One of the things that makes me really sad as, like, an Asian American is that, like, Asians, because we're heterogeneous um, ethnicity... Uh-huh. Like, we don't have, like, the black nod. We don't have, like, the black fist pump. It, ma- it makes me really sad. Like, mm. you know, I'll walk by an Asian person. It's like, you know, I don't know if they're... Korean. Korean, Chinese, Chinese, Japanese. They don't, they don't have this... We don't have a shared history. Mm. Um, there's, so there's no Asian nod. And that makes me so sad. Yeah. We gotta get it's, it, Scott. <laughs> but part of it, too, is, like, the person might... My father's Nigerian. The person might be a whole other ethnicity. Mm. But there's a shared experience because if you get pulled over, I don't think everybody's asking, are you Nigerian or are you from right, Ghana? Right. Um, and you, you're just black. And so I think that experience, that history, yeah, you're right. It definitely unites you in a way that mm-hmm. um, transcends some things. And I think sometimes we make the mistake of believing that those two things are equal for like white folks to find haven in their space with other white folks and people of color to find a place of haven with their people of like, everybody just likes to be with their people. I think there's some truth to that, but I think we have to approach it in a way that's a little more nuanced when we're dealing with power. And so when white folks are together, yes, it's good for white folks to be together and maybe you may feel a little safer or whatever, but there is a level of power that exists and that power is exercised in those spaces where for people of color, a lot of times they're gathering as a safe place from those who have power and authority that usually oppress and affect them. And so, so many times I'm a big component or a big champion for multi-ethnic churches and like we should all come together. But there are like small, especially like immigrant communities that they're coming together is a survival tactic <laughs> and is needed and necessary and should be like encouraged and, fl- and able to flourish. Where when if white folks intentionally just come together, it's not necessarily a survival tactic, but it's, it's self-preservation of, of power. And so just to, to say that there's a nuance within that. I've thought that predominantly white spaces desperately, desperately need people of color to join, but predominantly minority churches don't need white people. So it's, there's definite imbalance that I would see of benefiting. I could see white churches really benefiting from becoming more diverse, but like an immigrant person needs to just go one day a week and just be themselves with other people who are like them and Mm -hmm. not be doing that struggle that they're doing all week. That space would not benefit from white people. Yeah. 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 But Scott, uh, I wanted to know your answer to that question. Yeah. I mean, I've never felt fully comfortable in any type of church setting. 
I think it's actually a good thing that I've never been comfortable because you know our purpose in growing as disciples of Christ isn't to be comfortable, right? Um, it's to be mm-hmm. challenged and it's to you know look at the craziness and painfulness of this world and to build a faith that's strong enough to face the way that the world is. And so I think the uncomfortableness that people of color have had to go through, um, the tension, even though we were never forced on anyone, is a spiritual boon in terms of creating a more resilient type of faith. Mm-hmm. That'll preach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but actually, I want to comment on something you said, Jeremy, earlier, because you were saying how when you're like meeting white Christians, you're always wary about if they are trying to see if you can be like the token minority of the community. That's such a big thing. That's one of the main reasons why I feel uncomfortable going to and visiting white churches. Even like, you know, being in white pastoral gatherings, conferences. It's kind of funny because like tokenism is like the polar opposite of allyship. Mm. You know, it's like these white people are, are like saying, are you the white ally? That's what a token minority is, a white ally. And we need to propagate our white agenda. Yeah, yeah. exactly. A token minority is a white ally. Are you going to be the ally to the white people? Are you going to be the minority ally to the white people? Right. So it's really important to be resistant to that. Because, mm. you know, white people, they do it subconsciously. You know, they want to be validated. Mm. Will you be my Candace Owens? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a whole nother episode. <laughs> <laughs> and so I've often been labeled as troublesome. I've often been labeled as someone that's outspoken. And it's not because, you know, I'm someone that loves to rock the boat. It's because, like, you know, I want to be someone that speaks my mind. And if you give me a place at the leadership table, I want to have an equal voice as everyone else does. And when people respond negatively to that, that's when I realize, like, oh, they weren't looking for my voice. They were just looking for your face. Yeah, for my face. As beautiful as it is. It's not all I am. I think it's also because Asian minorities are viewed as being compliant. And so if you disagree, people are just... Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, what? You you talk back? What? Right. It's like, it's like the Catch-22. Right? Like, the more you don't conform to their stereotype, the angrier they get. Which is, like, crazy. The degree to which people have normal relationships with people they're discipling, that's when I think the tokenism kind of for me, in my experience, goes out the window. Like I've had people like who are, I don't know, guest speakers at a crew college outing or whatever. And one of the, the guys was like asking me, I don't know him at all. And he's like, do I have two parents? My parents together? And I was kind of like, yeah. At that time was just kind of like really awkward. It was at one of the mm-hmm. fall retreats. He was a good speaker. It's almost like talking to us is like on a missions trip to people you've never talked to. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. <laughs> Yeah, Jeremy, when, when you were a student at college, did you have black staff people mentoring you? Yeah, there are one woman in particular, um, Reverend Virginia Ward. She's a pastor with her husband in Cambridge, and she was leading BCM, Black Campus Ministries, while, when I was a student there. She took a lot of us students under her wings to kind of show us how to navigate white intervarsity. Wow. Um, awesome. Especially when you became a staff member, she spent countless hours in different conferences and meetings and retreats, helping us understand how to navigate the waters that we were swimming in. I had the opposite experience with Campus Crusade. Which is also crew now, just for listeners' clarity. Which is one of my (laughs) biggest criticisms of that organization. Through four years of college and then four to five years of volunteer staff afterwards, I had zero minority staff people disciple me. 
And it was just a turnstile of white male disciplers who came in for a year or two and then left, pretended they were interested in me. Um, yeah, it was disingenuous discipleship. It, it really stunted my spiritual growth and made me um, cautious of being around white leaders because of it. Mm-hmm. I think I kind of saw what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Is my perception of how your experience was during that time. I would almost want to say that part of the problem would be that the ministry was really small, so there were very few leaders, except that I went to a school that was a lot larger and a lot more leaders who were all white. So that might be a thing that crew could work on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I had a friend who applied for crew staff, um, went through the orientation process, and pretty much as he was coming out of that orientation process, was approached and said that this isn't a, a place for you. I don't think culturally you what? can fit um, wow. here. And I don't think you can fundraise what you need in order to be a staff. And so we're going to have to let you go. Wait, so it might be hard for them, but to say it in such a vague way, it's almost like saying it without wanting to say our organization actually can't handle you. Your blackness. <laughs> you know, like they're not, yeah, they're not saying it as a, a fault right. of their own. <laughs> right, right. And so needless to say, he, you know, that was the end of his, his pursuit of, of staff. At the InterVarsity's credit, InterVarsity does have like a scholarship for certain um, ethnicities, right? Yeah, InterVarsity tries. Their funding model is still inequitable, but I think they do try to some extent or depending on who's in leadership in whatever area we're talking about. I was blessed to be a student and a staff member under a leadership of a white male who, for some reason, he gathered all the black staff. He cast a vision. His vision for the region was it was a black-led kingdom movement. And so we didn't know what to do with this like 65-year-old white guy <laughs> who, who came and said, hey, you know, to all of the region in New England, that's Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, <laughs> that my vision for the Ministry of InterVarsity in New England is that it's going to be a Black-led kingdom movement. And people are like, what does that mean? Is there a place for me still? And in some ways, equity feels like oppression mm-hmm. to those who are used to privilege. And so people were pushing back and he had a hard time trying to articulate it. But I felt truly... Did they call him a communist? No, <laughs> <laughs> nah, some people... Well, they might as well have. Their, their equivalent to that was they left staff. <laughs> mm. Wow. But he's no longer on staff, unfortunately. Um, but that's a whole nother story. What I wanted to say, though, was that he was a white male who I thought saw some of the things that I would like most white males to be able to see. I think partly it was because of his age and he had some experiences with an intervarsity for a couple of decades that helped him grow on his ethnic journey. But it gives me hope for the redemption of white males <laughs> and, and to be able to see what does is, what is a redeemed ethnic identity look like for a white male or for white folks in general. If we can't have a, a picture of what that could look like, mm-hmm. it's going to be hard for us to move forward as a, as a community without just vilifying and excluding and doing to them exactly what they've done to people of color for so long. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think that having that, as I've seen as well, can be a healing thing. So you don't have to just go by faith, but you can have some sight, at least a little bit. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it does. definitely takes a journey on the healing path to be able to, to actually try to see redemption in what has been so bad for so long, uh, a history mm-hmm. where it's many times void of hope. But, you know, that's what the faith calls us to, the hope when there seems to be no hope. 
I did have a question because you said InterVarsity staff taught you how to navigate. Like, what was that? Like, what were some of the things they taught you? Yeah, so some of the things were the structure itself of campus ministry, at least within an InterVarsity, you had a direct supervisor if you was a campus staff. And there was a, a chain of command, like in most organizations, there was a hierarchy of sorts. And so what she did was she she was given the authority from that same white male that I just told you about who hired her to be on equal par, if not have more authority than your supervisor. And so if you needed another opinion and your supervisor, who more than likely was a white male or somebody who was white and you're a person of color, if, if, if you felt like they couldn't relate, they couldn't understand, or that there was some sort of oppression happening, she was a person that she said, come talk to me. Right. I can intervene. I can call your supervisor. I can even call your supervisor's supervisor and try to handle situations um, that may you know, be oppressive. And so that was a huge burden lifted when situations came up where it's like, what do I do? I have this tension with my supervisor. You call her. You'll have a conversation with her. Maybe that'll be good. She'll have a conversation with them. Maybe it'll be a three-way conversation. Who knows what it'll be like? Um, but there was an advocate um, and it was a direct place to go for that. I think she also told us like, this is about your development. What skills are you learning? Because there will be a life after InterVarsity. And for many staff of color, they get caught up in InterVarsity. And before you know it, with fundraising and everything, they're no longer on staff. And you don't know how to translate your skills from InterVarsity into another sector, into another field. Um, and now you crap out of luck and you have so much resentment towards InterVarsity. And so she helped us just start thinking about those things in advance um, and to be able to envision what does it look like when I leave here because it will happen. And so things like that help put things in perspective for us. Yeah, let's move on to like questions about moving forward. So Jeremy, you know, you've had a lot of experiences of cultural inequalities, cultural insensitivities. And so, you know, learning from that and gaining wisdom from that, I mean, as you move forward as a ministry leader, as a church planter, what strategies do you see as like the best ways to build a truly multicultural uh, church space that welcomes all races and all peoples? Mm. I'm trying to figure that out still. <laughs> I think it comes down to what is your theology um, of scripture as it relates to race and ethnicity? Do you think that the conversation of race should even be had within the gospels? And this isn't a gospel topic, like some people would say. Or do you see the richness of the gospels and how it speaks? to our ethnic identities um, and what that looks like in the kingdom. So I think it starts there. Um, I think without a good theology, it's, good, it's hard to have a, a good orthopraxy of actually living these things out. And I think we have to have a good theology of Genesis, of made in the image of God, um, and every person made in the image of God. For, for leaders who are leading spaces that they desire to be multi-ethnic, or they are multi-ethnic and don't know how to lead in those spaces, I think it's listening to the voices of those that are on the margins in whatever space that you are leading or in and, and trying to move those voices and those concerns to the center of the community instead of the fringes. And so whether it's culturally diverse, whether it's just diverse in other ways as well, um, even if it's just like church backgrounds or church theology, um, I think diversity is going to be good in any community. And so not being afraid of that, not being afraid of something different, not being afraid of, like you said, you say something or speak your mind and be seen as somebody who was troublesome or challenging or whatever it may be. And, and I think that actually hurt me. I was in a high leadership position um, on a team that was making decisions for our region and our division. And every suggestion that I would give to this white male leader was seen as combative. It was seen as like, 
I was attacking the person instead of just the idea. Like I, I don't, I don't try to attack people. I try to attack ideas, but sometimes people confuse the two. Yeah. And so you have to be somebody who doesn't take things personal. Um, okay with sharing power. But yeah, it sounds good. Not easily lived out, especially as a male. I still have male privilege, and I still abuse that privilege time and time again, unknowingly, and maybe even sometimes knowingly. Um, and my wife constantly is calling me out on those things. But I think if you are a person with any sort of cultural power, how do I use that? Um, how do I divest of that? Um, and how do I how do I share it? Mm-hmm. So scripture having a good theology around racial reconciliation and what it means to me in the image of God and being able to work with with people and share power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in Tavarsi, we have this framework called the four circles of like how we share the gospel. Um, and the first circle is like designed for good. Everything was designed for good. The second circle is like sin entered into the world. Brokenness entered. Um, third circle is Jesus entered. And in the fourth circle, he sends us out to heal. And so we kind of ran race through that of like everybody's ethnic identity is designed for good and beautiful and made in the image of God. And somehow sin has somehow corrupted all of it. And so what are the ways in which sin entered into the world um, and somehow created what we know as race, uh, which is man-made? And how do we look at that and understand that brokenness and understand the reality of that brokenness, but then also allow Jesus to enter into that brokenness like he entered into our world? And then how do we sit at the feet of Jesus in community and individually and seek healing in our own hearts that need to change? And then how do we move forward from there and share a gospel that actually brings people together? I like to ask students when I'm engaging with them, I'm like, where do you find yourself? Do you think that like there's no race issues at all and everything is great? Or do you only focus on the things that are like really evil and bad and you have no hope? Or do you constantly just lean on Jesus without even recognizing the brokenness? Like where where do you find yourself as you think about your ethnic identity um, in the gospel and then begin to unpack that? Right. And the fact that most pastors, even non-white pastors, don't even think about asking their congregations that question of, you know, how does Jesus speak to your ethnic identity? You know, it's not surprising that we have a huge race problem in the church. Yeah. A race problem, many would say, started in the church. (laughs) But that's Mm -hmm. another history. When I see people who are more in, like, multicultural settings, if someone is, like, maybe Nigerian-American or Korean-American there's like a higher proportion in the multicultural settings or things like that. Whereas mm. in my experiences, people who like grew up, say, in a black church setting, maybe there's less, there's more pessimism. But I guess what you're saying is like... Yeah, I think I, I, think I had a lot of hope when I first came to faith. <laughs> and I had a lot of faith in the church and what could be in the kingdom of God. And I think I had a lot of faith in intervarsity as a ministry. And I think I had too much faith in InterVarsity as a ministry. And I think as I grew as a student and then as a staff, when I began to see higher up in leadership and be able to go behind the veil of leadership, mm-hmm. I began to be disappointed in InterVarsity, disappointed in the church, disappointed in what could be, disappointed in faith leaders. And so I think that pessimism, for me, it comes when I look at the cultural moment that we're in. I look at history. I look at racism inside and outside the church. And then I look at the church that is oblivious to that reality. And I think that's where pessimism seeps in um, and hope begins to decline. And then when I think about what that could look like, and I think I look around me and like, who's going to do this and who's going to like lead this on? I honestly, <laughs> I don't know if I ever told Scott this, but 
I don't want to lead Christian ministries. <laughs> um, I feel like God's called me to, and I'm obedient to the call. But there are moments and seasons when I rather just go to work and play with my kids and not be in church ministry. But I do have a vision for what it could be, and I do see potential, and I do see the kingdom coming in this place. And so, yeah, I sit in that tension of the already, but not yet. Yeah. I wanted to ask, also, I wasn't sure whether I want to ask the positive version of this question or the negative <laughs> to both Jeremy and Scott, so let mm-hmm. me know. But I wanted to ask, <laughs> is, is there a specific moment when something happened, like a specific situation or something somebody said that you recall as being a moment of deep disillusionment and disappointment? Or is there a moment you recall that sort of renewed your hope <laughs> <laughs> and kind of gave you courage to move forward you want to go first yeah we, we can kind of answer both moments that give me like great disillusionment pretty much anything a white leader says that is spoken with pride there's like dozens and dozens of memories i could i could bring up but one that comes to mind right now is when the white couple that i mentioned before they wanted to have a meeting with me to talk about the ways that they thought I was failing as a leader, and they wanted me to apologize to them when they should have been the ones apologizing to me. And I did apologize because I knew it would make them feel better. Uh, I knew that if you shut up and say what, what they want to hear, then everything will be smoothed over. So I didn't want to apologize, but I apologized, and I regret that. Moments that give me hope is when people tell me that I have something important to say and that I should keep speaking. It lets me know that God's prophetic voice is still in people, His Holy Spirit is still active, and that if you are a minority Christian and you feel this urge to say something, to say that something's not right, to say how things should be, uh, you have the prophetic gifting. Use it. And it's always encouraging because, you know, like I said, I get as much attempts to suppress my voice as I do <laughs> attempts to encourage it. So, you know, it lets me know that God speaks to people that most people don't expect Him to. That's good. Yeah, so for me, moments of deep sadness in the church, I think it was in 2016 when Bethel mm. supported Trump. And they came mm. out and said that they, they backed Trump. I think at that point, it hit me so hard because Bethel is such an influencer in our Christian culture. It was hard for me to even keep listening to their worship music, but they are gifted musicians and vocalists. And so I'm like, I want to listen because I feel like the presence of God is there, but they're supporting Trump. (laughs) Um, The presence of Trump. And so I think for me, that moment, and then also with like the 86% of white evangelicals who voted for Trump, I think that election cast a a deep, deep shadow over my hope in the white church, in the the American church. Yeah, 2020, let's see what happens. (laughs) I think I get hope from scripture. I get hope from, you know, things like this, where where I see folks who who are just doing their small part um, in the world and showing up in ways that could help people. And recognizing that it's in the small, um, not necessarily the big national narrative that matters for sure, but it's in the small local moments and yeah, that really bring the kingdom. In a house church with like ten people and kids are running around and God shows up, um, those moments give me hope. Yeah, it's like uh, what's the parable? Yeast and unleavened bread, small and imperceptible. Hmm. 
But that's where change happens. I want to come to your house church. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she Jenny visits often. Oh, we could we could empower you to plant your own house church. But also, I'll just say this too before we wrap it up. Um, I'm currently developing a course, an online course for faith leaders who want to engage at the intersection of race, justice, and faith, um, who want to learn how to disciple their their congregations and the people that they lead and who want frameworks and theologies around it. And so if you're interested in something like that, you can reach out to me via email. Uh, maybe we can put that somewhere up there or just my first or last name at Gmail. But yeah, that course should be coming out in early September. Awesome. Is Christianity the white man's religion? <laughs> What do you think? Is it the white man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm giving away the course now. I'm joking. <laughs> is it Bethel's religion or is it Jesus' religion? <laughs> Bethel and Trump or Jesus? <laughs> well, when you, when you think about it, Jesus was a brown-skinned man born to a community of people who were oppressed, who died at the hands of the state. You know, mm -hmm. you, when you begin to unpack the context of Jesus and his ministry and his life, you recognize that it's not this religion that we thought it was, but it was a religion that was co-opted by elite Europeans who turned it into a commodity to continue the oppression of others. A weapon, yeah. Yeah, when you mm -hmm. look at the history of it and you go back further than the Europeans' abuse of it, it was a, it was a book written by people of color. There's not a person in the Bible until you get to the end of the Gospels that was European. Um, but they were Middle Eastern, dark-skinned, or brown-skinned people. But somehow, we have movies called Exodus with all white people in Egypt. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> that was the funny... The, the, the recent <laughs> Exodus, I, was, I wasn't crying, I was laughing, because it's like, it's past... What is it? Past 2010... Yeah. And it was just like with all the diversity on the screen and they had to get white people and put tan tanning lotion on them. I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they they they, they, they like, that would be that would be great to be that able to do chance. that. But you had a chance. You had a but chance. they will admit that Jesus was black. Oh hell no, we can't do that. <laughs> so I like to tell white evangelicals, uh, a dark skinned, brown skinned man died on the cross for you. And Sometimes that's a lot. For, like, wait, what, 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 do you, what do you mean by the <laughs> A brown-skinned man died at the hands of the state, a modern-day lynched for you. <laughs> I mean, I can't believe that's mm -hmm. still controversial. Yeah, and people be like, whoa, this guy. It was like, okay, I can't talk to people that can't make those two steps. Because <laughs> like, <you know? laughs> they're saying that, oh, quote-unquote, you're making it political, quote-unquote. If they don't have that discipleship, I guess to to accept that. Yeah, and and that's the thing too. Even yeah. if they are making it political, like it is political actually. <laughs> politics is about the polis and how the people live together. That's that's literally what it means. And if our faith can't speak to how people live together, then what is our faith for? And so, yeah, I don't think we should support politicians from the pulpit. But I think as as ministry leaders, we have a a duty and a responsibility to call out evil wherever we see it, even if it lies in politics. Mm -hmm. And if you think that there's a place where your faith can't go, and that there's a place that is off limits to the gospel and to the critique of the gospel, then that thing's an idol, and you need to give it up. And mm -hmm. so to say that God is not big enough to speak into it, and we can't touch it, you know you're dealing with a with a demon, <laughs> with an idol. Yeah, Beth. <laughs> 
And after this, we got to have the Asian nod episode, too. <laughs> yes, yes. And that's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the hope? <laughs> yeah, Scott, there's hope. Next-gen pan-Asian-American nod. <laughs> Scott's like, nah. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening this week. Thank you, Jeremy, for coming on our show. It's been amazing. Guys, you can find us, as always, Judson Podcast on Instagram and Twitter at Judson Podcast. Or shoot us an email, info at JudsonPodcast.com. Let us know what you thought. Give us a comment. Give us a thumbs up. Give us a review. Five stars only, please. (laughs) Uh, We are available on Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find your podcasts. Bye!